0: Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. In the last few weeks, I've been working on a marketing boot camp for entrepreneurs from underrepresented people groups in response to some of the events of the last few months. And as part of that, I've been doing some interviews with some of the more talented founders and marketing folks that I know. And I just thought that this one, listening to it again, was too good not to share with everyone. So we're going to go ahead and republish it on the podcast. My guest is Ross Gordon, and he is the founder of Catch Co., which originally started as a brand called Mystery Tackle Box. Sending fishing enthusiasts boxes of lures and other products every month, but he has since evolved the business into something much larger He now manufactures and distributes his own fishing products has retail distribution at some of the larger sporting goods stores around the country and it's just built a really fantastic business and Ross is the definition of a hustler, and in this episode, you're going to learn how he came up with the idea, his unique approach to starting with a community first and how important he thinks that is, how he managed to overcome some of the challenges that very often will plague subscription box model businesses, how he learned how to navigate the world of manufacturing and retail and much, much more. I got a lot of value out of this. I think you will too. And with that, let's go to Ross. All right, Ross, thanks for being here. Really excited to do this with you. Um, I've followed you, you know, kind of your, your company's story for a long time and it's been neat to kind of watch it evolve and grow. Um, So I'm really excited to do this, but why don't, why don't we start with actually before catch um, you actually had another startup. I believe it was in the lead gen space. Tell us a little bit about that and maybe what you were doing before and maybe how, um, how that informed kind of your evolution as sort of an entrepreneur. Sure. Yeah.
1: First of all, thanks for having me. Excited to to do this interview with you. But um, I started my career in digital media. So even prior to starting CraftJack, which was my last company, which was a home improvement lead gen company, I started my career at a very small web design firm. It was called InfoTube, and we basically I was a started as an intern doing sales, copywriting, taking out the trash, getting coffee, you know, a little bit of everything. But at that company, um, because it was a small company, I got to work with the designers, the web developers, and I really learned the ins and outs of how is a website built. How do you go from an idea to a Photoshop file to HTML to back-end databases and all that stuff. Um, so I started to get an understanding of digital early on in my career. Um, I was at that company for about a year and a half. It ended up getting sold. I actually got let go from that company when they sold the business. They didn't really need me. They sold it to one of the clients. Um, and then I got a job at Leo Burnett, um, as a digital project manager or coordinator. I was a very junior project manager. Uh, but I was working on the um, pet food brands within the Purina portfolio. Um, but I'd always wanted to be a copywriter. And one of the creative directors there noticed in a lot of the um, brainstorming meetings where I was supposed to be note-taking, I was throwing out ideas and kind of participating. <laughs> yeah. And one day he approached me. he's was like, hey, you've had some actually really clever ideas on how to use digital for our clients. Um, have you thought about, you know, being a creative or a copywriter? And I was like, well, it's funny. You mentioned that I actually wanted, I was an English major in college. I wanted to be a copywriter, but I didn't really have, I didn't go to ad school, so I didn't have the background. So they gave me an opportunity to basically pitch the entire internal Purina team, like some spec concepts to kind of evaluate my chops. And I did that and everyone loved the idea. So they put me on, um, they put me on as a copywriter. But during that time, I I got into the world of like affiliate marketing as a side hustle, because at my previous job, InfoTube, one of the clients we were working for wanted me to read this book called The AdSense Code, um, which was like one of these make money online books from this yeah. guy, Joel Com. But he talked about like how he would build these microsites and basically arbitrage AdSense traffic. And this client of ours wanted to build a site called The Name Engine. And the point of the site was to pronounce every celebrity name. I don't, I don't know what the actual point of it was, but I think they thought that by people Googling celebrity names, they could like rank at the top of the list. And then you could click a microphone and it would literally be somebody reading the pronunciation of their name and they were going to put ads in there. I didn't get that concept, but this whole concept of like, wow, you could make money online. I could like build a website and make money from that. Like it just blew my mind. So I started a blog called Free Stuff Finder, which was an affiliate blog where my wife was really into getting free samples from like (laughs) all these different sites she would sign up to. Yeah. So I started Free Stuff Finder and I'd basically just find other sites posting free samples and I'd repost them to my blog. And early on, I got traffic because I'd go to the free stuff section of Craigslist and I'd start like spamming my links on there and I'd get taken down after like an hour and I'd make like five bucks. I'd be like, holy crap, I just made money on the internet. Um... So I got into the world of affiliate marketing. Eventually, I started to like really understand SEO, and um, and that type of you know pay per click and some of that type of stuff. So I, I started Free Stuff Finder, and then I started to get into the world of affiliate marketing because I'd go to these affiliate sites to find offers to put on Free Stuff Finder, and I'd see all these other offers for all these other things you could sell,
0: like a Commission Junction or something like that type of exactly. thing.
1: Exactly, Commission Junction. There was, I mean, this is back in two thousand and. Six two 2007. So there was some big affiliate networks. There was also like a lot of really shady affiliate offers going on, like kind of scammy things like, you know, eBooks and weight loss and all this stuff. And I was trying to, you know, find something legitimate. And so I stumbled into this world of home improvement legion. There was, there was a website that was basically offering $10 a lead for every lead you'd send them. And it was for swimming pool estimates. Mm-hmm. Basically, if, if you find a homeowner who wanted to get swimming pool, They'd fill out the form, they would sell that to pool contractors, and I would get 10 bucks. So I started to teach myself Google um, pay-per-click, AdWords, and basically trying to arbitrage traffic. I built a site in WordPress. It was a simple landing page. It was called EstimateMyPool.com. <laughs> I was bidding on keywords for people looking for pool contractors. I would generate the lead for five bucks and I'd sell it for 10. And there you go. Like I mean, not right away. At first I would generate the lead for 12 bucks and sell it for 10. Right. right <laughs> and then I was right. like, you know, you you optimize. Um so that's how we got into affiliate marketing. It was basically it started with this book, this website, the name engine. It, I kind of went down this rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, started this this estimate my pool. Eventually I started a website called Local Painter Quotes. So I started to look for other home improvement things. Ultimately that became a company called Craft Jack, which was, you know, a parent umbrella company for all the micro sites in home improvement. But what we really did at Craftjack that was different was we built a SaaS product, the software product. For the contractors using our our service to basically help them optimize their the way they were following up with leads. Um, what we learned early on is that contractors are not great salespeople. Uh, some of them, at least. And so if you're if you're a house painter and you work out of your truck and you have a paintbrush, you may run a house painting business, but you're not trained in like sales, follow up process and stuff. So painters would buy leads from us. They would wait a week to call the homeowner. Homeowner would get upset because they never got contacted. The house painter would call us and complain because when they called them a, a week later, the homeowner would say, I found someone else. So they thought our lead was bad. And so we built this call tracking technology on top of Twilio that could basically track how quickly they were calling the leads, send them reminders when to call. Ultimately, we gave them price incentives to call sooner. So we built that whole platform. Uh, that was CraftJack. And that's what I was doing prior to Mystery tap Got it.
0: Okay. The affiliate thing is interesting because I think, uh, you know... Th- The number of founders I've talked to who, who that's sort of how they got their start is pretty, I mean, it's, it's, I feel like it's statistically significant, let's say. Um, Why do you think that is? And like, if you were advising someone that was trying to kind of get their start and sort of dip their toes in entrepreneurship, is that where, is that a, a, a place where you would still kind of recommend people start? I mean, I know, you know, on the one hand, it sounds like it's gotten a little bit more professionalized. Um, and then, so there's less kind of shady stuff out there maybe, um, on the other hand, maybe some of those arbitrage opportunities you mentioned around, um, just with, just with, uh, saturation of ad networks and the number of advertisers on there, it seems like it might be a little bit harder to kind of do the $5 turning it into 10 type of thing. But like, what are, what are, I guess what two questions there? so do you think that's still a, a, a relevant way or a good way to kind of dip your toes and then two, um, what are the the skills that you think people are taking away from pursuing models like that, that, that equip them to um, branch out and to, pr- to to pursue kind of entrepreneurship sort of generally? Why is it such a good training ground for that?
1: Totally. Well, first of all, I think I agree with your assessment of, you know, people with affiliate backgrounds being successful in the startup world. I've met a ton of other founders, some really big companies like the Chewy guys, for example, I think started as affiliate. Oh, interesting. I didn't know as that. Well, Yeah. Um, And I think there's an interesting selection bias there where it's the people who have that type of background are tend I believe, tend to be more successful when they start companies. So it's not that more people from affiliate backgrounds are starting startups, but the ones who had started, who have that background are more successful because they know how to get customers. So I think that's a big part of it is. People with that skill set. I mean, the startup's biggest challenge is getting customers. Like yeah. that is the number one challenge, right? Yeah. Most yeah. most founders who have a great idea, like they they have a vision for a product, they know how to make something really great. Where they often struggle is how do I sell this thing and how do I get customers in a cost effective manner? That's the most difficult yeah, totally. part of all of this. Yeah. Um, and and too often companies and founders try to outsource that function. And they and I think you may have even you know written about this on LinkedIn or something about owning your marketing function and that should be something that's done in house. But um, w- when you have an affiliate background, there's a couple of skill sets that you have. One, you tend to be both analytical and creative. It's a it's a really good hybrid of those two skills because um, you have to be live in the data and you have to understand where your margin is because as an affiliate. Every penny you can optimize for goes into your own pocket. Yeah. And so you're incentivized to really learn the platforms, the ins and outs, the tiny little hacks that really increase your performance and give you that return that you're looking for. Yeah. And then you have to be creative. You have to think outside the box because it's saturated and because there's so many people competing for such a, you know, limited amount of space you have to be more clever in your solutions for coming up with ways to engage consumers in whatever media you're advertising in. Yeah, And so it, it, people who are really creative and analytical tend to really thrive in that um, environment. Um, and it also creates a lot of self-discipline. Like I mentioned before, you ha- every penny you can squeeze out of this thing goes into your pocket. Yeah, And so you're A-B testing the crap out of everything. And you're thinking about all these angles and you're and you're being disciplined and you also have to act on opportunity quickly when you find it and not like debate and go back and forth. You have to be willing to just dive in, fail and test. Yeah, Those are all the skill sets that I think really make for successful founders. And so that's why I think there's a lot of overlap
0: between yeah. those two things. Makes sense. Makes sense. So, um, so let's jump forward, I guess, and then jump to, um, you know catch which i which originally was i believe correct me if i'm wrong but started off as mystery tackle box how did you get the idea for that and and uh how did you uh what made you want to kind of jump from uh craft jack over to fishing
1: yeah so first of all fishing is a passion of mine i grew up in minnesota i've loved fishing ever since i was a kid yeah um and so it's something i've i've just done my whole life and i've been incredibly passionate about it but I actually had the idea for Mystery Tackle Box probably as far back as 2010 when I was still working on Kraft Jack. Um, And the idea was essentially like fishing is an incredibly complicated and intimidating sport. Even for someone like me who grew up fishing as a kid, every time I walk into a Bass Pro Shops or a tackle shop, I'd spend an hour just like looking at all the lures and how do I use this? And is this the right time of year? Like it's very overwhelming. Yeah, And the shopping experience does nothing to help the consumer. And so I was just thinking about like, how could this be easier for someone? You know, how, how could this be simplified? And then also people who love fishing tend to obsess about their gear, kind of like any enthusiast market. Yeah. You obsess over your, your tools of the trade. And so people who love fishing, they just love trying new tackle, learning about new tackle, where it's made, how it's from. So the idea was like, how do we take those two elements? How do we simplify something, give people the information they need to still the selection down to like some relevant products for them. Yeah. But also, you know, people just love getting tackled. So how do we make that fun for them? And yeah. that was the idea. But I was still working on craft We were, we were doing well. We were in the middle of fundraising. I actually had a term sheet from light bank on the table. We were talking to a couple other investors as well, but I couldn't shake this idea for mystery tackle box. And so I actually had started a Facebook community around fishing, which at the time became the largest oh, Facebook wow. fishing community because there were there were no other yeah. ones back yeah, in 2010. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I was like thinking about this business nonstop. I was still working on Craftjack. I was so delusional that I actually tried to convince Lightbank to invest in both companies at the same time. <laughs> um, yeah, just I don't know if Polly remember remembers that conversation, but I'm sure it was an interesting one. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was naive at the time, but like, that's how, that's also how passionate I was about the, about the idea. Like I couldn't stop thinking about it. And so we were fundraising. Um, and there was a company at the time called service magic. Who's now home advisor, which we used to sell leads to them. And they found out we were fundraising and I asked them if they, you know, would be interested in participating in the round. And they basically said, you know, we don't invest in companies, but, have you ever thought about you know selling your company? Some of this technology you've built is super interesting. You guys are really forward-thinking in terms of how you're approaching this market. And that's when like it clicked for me. Like this might be my opportunity to like actually focus on something I'm a little bit more passionate about. I, I didn't like home improvement. It wasn't my background. Like I literally stumbled into it from a string of events. Um, and we were and I was good at it. But so for me that opportunity just became clear. So decided to sell Kraft Jack to Home Advisor. Um, earlier than most people probably would be willing to sell a company, but for me it was more about you know some financial security, but mostly about now I can focus on something I love. And literally the day I signed the LOI for um, selling Kraft Jack, I called my designers like, let's build a, a landing page for Mystery Tackle Box. Let's get this thing going.
0: You know it, you, it sounds like you kind of this happened almost accidentally, but um, you know there've been a number of stories in the past. Like the you know Everlanes of the world and folks like that who they built a product on like like you build the community first almost before you have a product to offer and then um, you've you've developed trust with them they're all talking to each other you're positioned very favorably as a result and then when you do put up a landing page or whatever the kind of the v1 of the product was um, you know you've you, you, you've You've already got an audience kind of built in, or at least the beginnings of one. Um, was that was that totally accidental, or I mean, did it? And and I guess if you were to to do it again, is that where you would start? Uh, would you start in the same the same way? Because it seems like that was probably a pretty valuable asset early on.
1: Yeah. So I so the the Facebook page was called Bass Fishing Favorites. I built that page knowing that I wanted to commercialize it in some way. Okay. Um, I had found success on Facebook with Free Stuff Finder, the Free Stuff blog that we had. We built a really, we were the, there were plenty of free stuff blogs before us, but we were one of the first to build a community on Facebook and we grew that community very large. And then all of our content that we posted, we just had a traffic source built in that we didn't have to pay for. So that business actually ended up funding craft Jack from just the monthly revenue stream from the free stuff um, finder. So I knew there was a play there. I didn't know the fishing industry as well. And like, there weren't like obvious affiliate offers but I was passionate about it so I was like you know what I'm going to build out this community and I'll figure out something to do with it later so part of the catalyst for thinking about mystery tackle box was also like how do I monetize this community that I've built out let me brainstorm oh here's a really fun way I can do it and this was even before the subscription thing like took off when I was thinking about it I actually came across like Birchbox researching the idea for mystery tackle box I'm like oh yeah. People are doing this subscription thing and all these other yeah. categories that kind of gave me confidence, but absolutely believe in building the community first, because, in, in you know, as we'll probably talk about, community is such a big part of our brand now and how we've used organic social to really, it, it's the cornerstone of our strategy. And I think it started with that recognition. If you build your audience and you can authentically engage with them, you can think of different touch points to to come in and commercialize that relationship in an authentic way.
0: Yeah. So, you know, obviously, like in, in one of one of my worlds is kind of like innovation consulting for kind of enterprise. And they talk a lot about, you know, they've read the lean startup stuff and they talk a lot about customer development and things like that. Were you that asset seems like that theoretically would have been really valuable in doing, you know, pseudo market research and kind of honing in on what this value prop would ultimately be. Were you were you leveraging that at all to do, to get like qualitative data about um, what the MVP of this thing might look like? Or were you, did did that just sort of happen outside of that? And when you came to them, it was sort of fully formed already.
1: I would say in hindsight, I did that at the time. I don't think I realized I was doing it. Like I was just trying to engage with the community and I wasn't being super strategic about it, but we would post like, which brand do you guys want to see in next month's box? And we'd post two options and, you know, we'd look at whichever one got more likes on it or something like that, which is very informal. You know, now we're a lot more deliberate about tapping into our community for like more thought out surveys and data analysis. But at the time it was just like, let me throw an idea up there and see what people say about it. Um, And that, that was valuable.
0: (laughs) Well, it seems like you get benefit at least like, you know, since Facebook is, is, um, is algorithmic it seems like you're killing two birds with one stone there where you're maybe getting some qualitative data and by virtue of them engaging with your content, they're more likely to see your future content. So it seems like you had kind of a dual, dual benefit there. Um, that's interesting.
1: Yeah. It was probably more of me wanting to engage the audience and actually like doing the market research at first. You know, I, I was, I, I kind of had a vision for what I wanted the box to be. And it was kind of building it for myself almost, which I don't always necessarily recommend, but it is a good place to start. Yeah. Um, but as we got the products out there, we started to learn, okay, well, where are my biases around what I would purchase different from the broader market and something like fishing, which is a semi-regional sport. I started to learn early on like, Oh, I do have biases the way I fish and Illinois is very different than how people are fishing in Texas and hmm. products that I think are very cool may not have as much mass market appeal. So that was like some of the really early stuff that Facebook, our audience helped me learn is like, okay, there's people see this industry a lot differently than me. And that gave me some guidance on where to adjust.
0: Let, let, let's let drill in a little bit on the community stuff. Cause I think you're right. Like, you know, you said it's, it's kind of a, the cornerstone of your strategy and, um, it seems like it's the type of thing that would be applicable to just about anybody. Like whether you're trying to build out like a personal brand and you want to kind of own a niche or you're even like local, some local type of local business. And certainly if you're kind of a more traditional type of startup, um, if you were to kind of extrapolate or like document sort of your like unified theory of community building, like, what would your advice be to people? Like, where do you, where do you start? Does, do things like platform matter at all, or is it really a function of engagement? Like are there strategies that you found to be really effective in terms of kind of getting, getting those, those early community members involved, how you, how you make them feel welcome? Are you connecting them to each other? Um, You know, how, how, how aggressively do you do you manage and sculpt that community versus kind of letting it kind of grow organically? Like, how do you think about community community building sort of broadly?
1: Yeah, this this is uh, such a good topic. There's so much we can talk about here. Um, and I guess the first thing I'll say is there's oftentimes a mis- uh, misconception about what people mean by community. And oftentimes when I'm talking about community to people, their mind goes to like social network, like like, Oh, you're trying to build a social network and right. you're trying to like, how do people engage within your platform? And I'm like, well, we're not necessarily right now approaching it through that fashion. We're trying to build a community engagement around our brand by creating two way communication, by interacting with our fans as if they were our friends and letting them feel that they can interact with our brand in the same way. Yep. So they become an evangelist for our brand. That's how I think about community. Um, and we don't have to necessarily build you know, our own platform to facilitate that communication. It can happen on Instagram, and it can happen on Facebook, and it can be distributed. But it's more about the feeling and the tone of the relationship. So that's the first thing I'll say. The second thing I'll say is, in my opinion, social media is one of the most powerful platforms that have ever been available to brands in the history of commerce ever. Like This is the first time in the history of commerce that a brand can build a personal relationship with their customers. That has never, ever in the history of, you know, anything been possible. Right. Yeah. Especially at the scale that social media allows us to do that. And I think where brands often fail is they don't look at it through that lens. They look at it as a commercial tool yeah. versus a relationship tool. And or it's like a broadcast
0: medium. I'm trying yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm talking at you and I want to control the message. And I think it makes them uncomfortable often about this idea of like, wait a minute, they can talk back to me and you know it, it's a different way of thinking certainly than what most marketers are thinking yeah
1: and so for me social media is a way to humanize your brand and if you can humanize your brand you can build an authentic relationship with a customer and if you can build an authentic relationship with a customer that's where you get the level of loyalty that is the most valuable type of loyalty you'll ever see from customers and so we think about social media as a way to humanize our brand to build the relationships selling is almost like a secondary purpose if you if you look at any of our content you will see little to no selling being done. Like, you know, we we have ads for that. We do for that paid ads. But all of the content we create is how do we create value for our consumer through the form of engagement? How do we make them laugh? How do we enlighten them in some capacity? Yeah. How do we inform them of something they don't know? Like, that's how we view social media. And that's how we've built such a powerful brand online. And there's so many customers of ours. And we've done a lot of research on this um, with with surveys and all types of other research. There's, our audience is so engaged that even when somebody is no longer subscribing, for example, mystery tackle box to our to our um, box, they still say that we're one of their favorite brands on social. Yeah, which is crazy. Most people think that when you end a commercial relationship with a customer, they move on, and they're not interested. And we are seeing the exact opposite. And why that's been powerful is as our business has evolved beyond just mystery tackle box, and now we are at CatchCo, and we have products we manufacture, and we have Carl's as our e-commerce site. Um and we have all these content, you know, platforms are creating. We now have an incredibly loyal audience who is looking for a reason to to transact with us again. Yeah. The subscription may not have been what they needed at that point in time. Maybe, you know, they got too much tackle or whatever the reason was. But now it's really easy for us to launch new business lines and have loyal customers out of the game. And that's the power for us for social media.
0: One of the things that I think confuses a lot of people. Like, I, I, in in my, in my classic, um, social always is the area that's the most, not necessarily contentious, but there's a lot of skepticism about it. And one of the arguments that I think comes up a lot is this idea of like ROI. Like, it's really hard. It's like, just like brand based advertising in general. I think it's hard for people to wrap their heads around that, like, how do I know that This time and energy I'm spending replying to each one of these comments is going to is going to pay off um, in terms of ROI. And as somebody who kind of came from the affiliate world, which is very data driven and things like that, it seems like you managed to um, either you figured out a way to draw a direct line to the ROI or you've sort of realized that it's not necessarily that easy to kind of calculate it directly, but it's totally there and it's totally worth it. Obviously you're a believer in it. So like, how do you respond to folks that maybe are skeptical about that from an ROI perspective or just, you know, this seems like a waste of time relative to some other types of things that I could be doing?
1: Absolutely. I I actually um, do a class on content marketing at Kellogg for uh, Scott Levy. And this, that's the question I get asked most often (laughs) is how are you measuring the ROI of this? Yeah. Yeah, I'll say a couple things on that one, like the fact that I come from a creative background and with my copywriting kind of skills at Leo Burnett, I have some of my DNA that's just built around wanting to create amazing content because I get a high off that. So like I was lucky to value that up front because in the beginning, it was literally just for me as much as it was for the consumers. I loved seeing the engagement that we would get now as we've built the brand over time and I've started to really understand the power of this platform I'd say a couple things. There are some measurable things we can attribute um, to our content. So for example, we can create lookalike audiences or even audiences of people who engage with our content. Yep. And we can AB test that against a regular lookalike audience who hasn't engaged with our content. And our CPA on paid media in those channels is lower. It tends to be, you know, 10 to 15% lower for those, yep. for those audiences. So we do see some attributable value there, but to your second point, some of this is is like brand marketing and especially a startup like us that doesn't have incredibly sophisticated enterprise analysis of like survey in market surveys and stuff like that. Yeah. A big part of it for me, it's an article of faith. I believe that if we have a highly engaged loyal consumer base, they are going to purchase from us more. And we see that anecdotally in comments. I love you guys. I'm never going to buy from another brand again. This content is fantastic. Like you just see it and you can just tell now Is that worth, you know, X amount of dollars a year of overhead to support that? That's where it gets a little bit fuzzy. And for me, it is a little bit of that article of faith. I know this is driving brand loyalty and I I may not be able to prove it to the point where our corporate, you know, competitors are going to look at it, but that's our advantage. My willingness to take that risk is our advantage right?
0: Well, and when you're going up against big, you know, big brands already spend money on brand and they spend money on television and outdoor and all these types of things. And those are cost prohibitive for most startups. Like organic social seems like the best and maybe only way to play the brand game um, and to potentially outflank, you know, larger, more well-funded competitors. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, that's interesting. Have you seen anything in terms of, you know, with the algorithmic changes um, and lots of people kind of lament that organic search is declining for them, does does the community aspect of it kind of act as a buffer or protect you that way in the sense of like a lot of those people that are lamenting that are probably using it as a broadcast medium to like be selly sell and you're engaging them a lot more directly? Or have, you, have you managed to... Um, not be as impacted quite so heavily from those declines in organic reach? Or um, are there strategies that you've used to kind of mitigate that?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, like, for example, Facebook is a, an amazing example. When I had bass fishing favorites back in the day, um, we had 65,000 fans and Facebook would show our content to 50% of our page, right? So when we launched Mystery Tackle Box, it was out there like people saw it. Now, maybe 2% of our you know, Facebook audience gets it, and bass fishing favorites isn't. We don't even post content to it anymore because it's become so powerless for us. Like, it's a platform because of that. Now our, we have a, you know our mystery tackle box Facebook page is seven hundred thousand fans, but same same thing. You know, the content is not widely distributed on organic social through Facebook, and so we've had to rethink how are we using Facebook, and we start to look channel by channel, right? But Instagram, on the other hand, has been incredible for us because we know we can create great Instagram content. So part of it is understanding what's driving the algorithmic changes uh, on each platform and how do you create content for that platform. Um, So within Facebook, you know, we use it some for like article content does okay. But what we're really starting to see now is Facebook is prioritizing content within Facebook groups. Yep. So we've started to create our own Facebook group around our brand instead of our page. So most of our focus now is like, let's build up our group. And then not only that, but then our community can also post to the group.
0: Yeah. And they're starting to post we'll unboxing to each other. videos and yeah. like
1: stuff. And that we, we have a group right now that we just started like a month and a half ago. And it had like 2000 um, members of the group. And the content on that gets more engagement than the 700,000 Followers we have on our uh, mystery tackle box Facebook page. So like we kind of see the writing on the wall there. So it's just about shifting strategy. Um, but on the flip side, like, you know, we're also always looking at emerging platforms. So TikTok right now is becoming a big focus for us. We just started our TikTok account, um, four or five months ago. We have 80. 2000 followers that we've all been organic. We've had a number of posts that have gotten over a million um, views on them. And so, like, we are just understanding that as consumer behavior is shifting, we need to be trailblazers kind of in these platforms and we need to be platform specific and understand what type of content are people consuming on TikTok because it's not the same content as people are consuming on Instagram. And so, we have like a really talented social media team. Um, and the person who manages our TikTok account, she is like a TikTok enthusiast. We're just like, you go do whatever you do. Like, I'm not even going to tell you. As long as you understand our brand and the tone we need and all that stuff, everything else is in your hands. And so, part of it is giving ownership to people who actually understand and not trying to like micromanage and tell them what to post. I mean, we have a brainstorming culture, so we'll share, we'll share ideas. But um, it's understanding the nuance of each platform and it's doing a lot of testing. I mean. That's the affiliate part of this too, is like, my brain is wired to test and whatever I think is right. I'm almost always wrong, but I'm also more willing to test a bunch of ideas. Does that
0: mean, does that mean like looking at things like reach or level of engagement and then saying, let's double down on those types of posts? Is that what you mean by that?
1: Absolutely. So like, for example, on Instagram, we'll test posting, um, different, you know, we do a lot of memes for our, our, uh, business and what we've realized is like there's certain style of memes that tend to get higher engagement the less professional the meme looks the better the engagement is so early on we used to like have our design team spend all this time like making something look super professional and what we've noticed over time is those posts actually underperform something with like white text on a black background like a, yeah. like a janky picture like so again we had to experiment through that or like Posts with too much text on them tend to do not as well as posts with less text, or different video formats. Like in Facebook, a, a square video versus a sixteen versus a wider screen aspect ratio, square square does better. So, like, there's a bunch of stuff we've just tested, little format things, just to like measure the engagement, the yeah. likes, the click through rates, and all that stuff.
0: What would be your advice? Because that's another, I think, objection and or hesitation, maybe that um, maybe not maybe not so much for startups, but definitely for any type of legacy brand. Um, or anybody that that is a big believer in when they brand and brand as they define it as um, things like brand voice the way that we the way that we look and represent ourselves to the market um, they have very aggressive sort of guidelines that they and they 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 watch that stuff like a hawk Um, it sounds like you you have some guidelines around tone and things like that but Um, It sounds like you give your team a lot more latitude in terms of execution and like you're not that worried about whether this Instagram post like visually is quote unquote on brand. You care a lot more about like engagement and depth of engagement. So if you were kind of advising a, you know, a brand manager or somebody or somebody who's just kind of comes from that lens of. No, no, no. This doesn't this doesn't look like a post for such and such company. Like what would be your advice to them about maybe expanding how they think about brand? At least as it relates to organic social and maybe maybe even broader than that.
1: Yeah, I would say the most the most powerful part of any brand is its authenticity. And I think that gets overlooked too often. I think all these other fake guardrails around like some of the nuance of exactly how we look and it's like trying to be too perfect. That's that can that can be inauthentic, right? Perfection can come at the expense of authenticity. And for us, like we have those guardrails. Here are the core tenets of our brand and what we're trying to do. But besides that, it's like take down all the other guardrails that don't matter. And and if you're if you feel your team understands how your brand can be authentically represented to your community, then let them own that. I don't need to approve every post or have legal review every post. Now look maybe we don't have as much to lose because we're not a multi-billion dollar corporation so sure. I could be naive in that sense but uh, assuming i'm speaking to most of the underdogs here and i'm not speaking yeah. to the 5 billion dollar corporations sure it's, like, it's you know don't overthink some of that stuff now if you have a premium brand and part of your brand is trying to portray a sense of luxury you may want to think about how you can do that but but it may not mean being perfect. And that's where there's maybe a a disconnect with how people view it.
0: If you're talking to the underdogs and like, they're worried about like how I get started with something like that. Like one of the questions is around like how, how much work does it take to kind of build up a a community like that? That's robust. And, you know, a lot of people talk about like the Gary V sort of like, you know, I'm sitting there 14 hours a day and I'm replying to every single comment and all that kind of stuff. Like how did, how aggressive were you and how much time maybe did you spend? Like if you were to have a hundred units of energy that you could spend on marketing, like how much of that would you allocate toward building up community early on?
1: Yeah. So for me personally, I'm, I've always been a marketer and, you know, been a creative. So I was very focused on it early on. You know, my role in the company was primarily when we first started, cause I was still on my earn at craft Jack for two years. So like I was doing that. I was running this company. I brought in some co-founders. I was focused on marketing and creative. Um, and, and paid acquisition um, and like strategy, big picture strategy. Um, so for me, like I would obsess over it early on because that's where I get my energy from. If I post a piece of content for better or worse, I'm refreshing that content, yeah, you totally. know, every 20 minutes to see how many likes it got. But that also gave me some of those insights. And I, if a customer posted something, I couldn't not respond. Like not like to argue, but like, yeah. thanks for commenting. Like I had to engage with people. That's just part of like why I do this. So, if you can find that within yourself, like it will certainly benefit you early on. Um, but the other thing I'd say is like community doesn't, you can have a community of 10 people to start, right? It's yep. like finding focus early on and finding like that authenticity versus trying to just build something big for the sake of something big. Your community could be too big to the point where it's actually inauthentic and people just don't really care. And they're there for yeah. the wrong reasons. And that's not as valuable, like a very large, unengaged audience is not valuable and early on a lot of our competitors they would go like pay for followers on instagram or they'd like, go like a million accounts because they know that a percentage of them would come like them back and there's all these like hacks people could do to build the size of their audience but then you look at their engagement and it's there is no engagement and that's not the value here the value isn't the number of instagram followers that you have it's the number of engaged people in your community and that's what i would push people to really think about
0: switching gears just a little bit i'd like i'd like to talk about the early days and so there's obviously audience building and things like that but then there's also kind of the product offering itself and you honed it so you you, you looked at um you, you kind of stumbled upon the box model as an approach um like you said there weren't a lot of affiliate kind of angles there there weren't people that were really doing this yet how did you go about kind of putting together the first versions of the box and doing things like securing securing vendor relationships um thinking about like the unboxing experience. Like, what did you, what did you spend your time and energy doing? Like kind of testing those early, early iterations of the box and actually like getting, cause I think a lot of people get hung up on, like, I don't know how to, how to, um, how to go build vendor relationships. I don't know how to kind of create this, the, go from an idea to like a packaged product that's being shipped to people. Like walk through that process a little bit.
1: <clears throat> yeah, no, definitely. I mean, in our sport, like we were the first, Company doing anything like this in our category, so at the time it was something completely new, and you know we obviously needed to get product to to do this. And part of the business model, the vision for the business model is we want to get your product at cost because it's marketing for you, yep. and it's product sampling, and it's basically no cost sampling to you. We'll just yep. pay you for the cost of your product. Now, most manufacturers in our category are not used to selling products at cost, right? So it, that's the uphill battle, and for us, it was a couple things. One, like we had to just at least prove out that we could get customers. So to me, the more important thing is like, let's get subscribers. We can figure out the manufacturer side later. So early on, it was like, let's just buy product wholesale. We're not really going to make any money on the box. We're not going to lose a ton of money, but we'll just break even. And let's at least get the customer experience right. Because without that, it's pointless. It doesn't matter what we sell the manufacturers on. So early on, it was like, let's just find some products and just prove this out. As we started to grow and go to trade shows, like we were ignored by almost everyone. Nobody took us seriously in our sport. Everyone's like, you know, why would people want random fishing lures? That makes no sense. People are very particular. Like, but a handful of companies are like, oh, this is different. Like, this is interesting. This is different. And if you're starting a business and you have a different idea, you need to find the people who are going to get your vision early on. There's just there's there's no amount of selling for certain people that's going to get them to change their mind. And I learned early on, like, don't waste your time trying to like sell those people. Find the people who are willing to take a chance. And it's probably smaller other smaller brands in your category because the big brands don't need you early on, right? They're sitting pretty and they're doing well and they don't want to rock the boat. But it's who are the other people who are at a disadvantage in your category and they're trying to hustle just like you're trying to hustle. They're going to be the ones who are willing to partner with you. So we found manufacturers who were other startups. Um, other brands who are trying to get their voice out there and they aligned with us. And that's where we found success early on.
0: It seems like that would work. That would, that would, it's, it's beneficial in the sense too that um, there's a, there's like a curation strategy here. And so the subscriber is probably aware of who those big players are already anyway. And so it's almost a benefit that you're exposing them to these smaller, upstart players that they might not have heard of, but are kind it of interesting. to our advantage.
1: Definitely. There was certainly some of that. And we, you know, at first we were like, well, we want to be perceived as legitimate. So the bigger brands would be make us feel more legitimate. But what we ended up finding is customers want to discover cool new stuff. If they, if you give them the same thing they see in Walmart, every time they go into Walmart, it's not that, it's not that exciting. And over time we found that balance. And as we grew, you know, it's funny, there's a trade show in fishing called ICAST. And It's every summer in uh, July in Orlando, and it's it's the show that all the manufacturers show all the new products for the year, and buyers are there. And like the first one we went to in twenty twelve, like nobody would talk to us. Second one we went to, like we had one or two meetings. Third one we went to like we were fairly busy. By the fourth, ICAST people were flagging us down like mystery tackle box guys like we got to get our products in your box because wow. you start to prove out that value. And then we're starting to go to some of the big brands. We're like, well, we're not so sure we, <laughs> you know, we may not be a good fit. But we had leverage them to say, well, we want you to launch your new products in our box. Like that's how we can make this exciting. That's cool. But to your point, like we we really needed to think about that experience from the customer perspective, and oftentimes companies are, are, you know, startups are too willing to like, think about their industry and like, well, how can we get the biggest players and the customers may not necessarily want that.
0: Yeah. Um, the, uh, I would imagine that one of the nice things about a physical kind of product like that, you know, a lot of, and not enough brands, I think probably take advantage of this if they're if they're doing like traditionally in commerce or whatever, but, um, is kind of that unboxing experience itself. And like, it seems there's a whole bunch of opportunities to create delight there. um, you know, create preference, increase the likelihood that they stick around? Like what were some of the things maybe that you did early on or that you honed in on that that were really effective in terms of making that experience itself kind of an enjoyable one such that people are compelled, it sounds like, to post their unboxing experience online and stuff like that. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, the experience is a, a huge, huge part of it. When we take a survey of customers and we ask them why they get Mystery tackle box, options are like to find new lures, to learn new techniques, to save money, the number one most picked answer, it's 40 or 50% of our customers is because I like the surprise. It's like literally they just want to have fun and get a gift yeah. every month. They say it's like Christmas every month. Like there's, you know, so the experience was huge for us early on. So there's a couple things we did to really hone that in. One is like the products have to be good quality. If you put in crappy products that really sure. experience. Um, two content, like how can we use the box to educate our consumers on the products, whether it's some story about where this product came from, maybe how to use it. But content is a really big part of the experience, especially for us. So we created a little mini magazine that we put in our box um, early on. Um, We, at some point, started doing scratch-off tickets in our box to like win free prizes. And people loved the scratch-off tickets. We stopped for a while because it got a little operationally complex to deal with the prizes. But now we're looking to actually bring it back. But People love this, you know, just more gambling, like is part of the experience. Yeah. Um, You know, a lot of it is just like not putting, not just thinking about the tackle. Like we put a custom decal every month. We work with an illustrator to do a fun fishing inspired, like wacky decal. I actually got one right here. It's It's almost like the cracker, the
0: cracker jack box.
1: Yeah. It's like a fish on sticker tattooed on someone's knuckles there. So like every month we're doing something fun like that. We have so many customers say that they still get the box just for the sticker. Like it's just a fun thing for them. Um, We also encouraged early on, like on the box, we would say, share your unboxing experience with hashtag mystery tackle box. And we would test that. And when we did that, we got like two times more people posting on social their unboxing experiences. And so we always thought about like our product is also content. Like we were very content minded and we try to think about how do we make our product content? And then one other example of that is inside of our boxes, if you open it up and you unfold the lid, the lid of the the top of the box actually unfolds into a ruler where you can measure your fish. Oh, interesting! And then we have an ongoing um, contest where you take a picture of your fish measured on the ruler, you tag it MTV Keeper, and that enters you into a contest. So people can engage, share their experience. Um, so we were just trying to brainstorm: how do we make the box content?
0: Yeah, that's really and, cool. Yeah, I would imagine that this kind of you know one of my questions was a lot of a lot of companies have attempted to pursue box model kind of strategies we've been pitched a number of them over the years and a lot of them seem like they run into um issues making the economics of it work in the sense of like acquisition cost is too high um they they churn pretty quickly um blah 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 blah, blah. and it seems like you've managed to buck a lot of those trends i obviously having a community i would imagine drove down your acquisition cost a lot um, it seems like, you know, paying a lot of attention to the unboxing experience is a way to kind of create um, preference such that you can kind of mitigate churn. Maybe were there any other things that you can think of that you that you all did that were maybe different than what some of those other maybe failed box models did that that led to your success? Yeah, I think there's
1: a couple things. Some of it is just like the industry we're in is a little bit unique for this type of model. So first of all, it's an antiquated industry. So when it came to like any kind of online competition we had little to none for a very long time. We were the only brand in fishing advertising on Facebook, probably for three or four years, let alone three or four months, like in that category. So we had like a wide open landscape. CACs were super low early on. Um, So that's one. Two, we're in an enthusiast market where people tend to kind of wear their passion on their sleeve. So when it comes to targeting and audiences, we could find people who like fishing because it was all over their Facebook profiles or all over yeah. their social media. So we were very easily able to target our core customer. Whereas a lot of other boxes are kind of targeting more broad types of consumer bases. If you're a snack box, right? How do you target people who want snacks? It's much harder. So we were very fortunate just to be in a large category that had this enthusiast profile. Um, some of the other things. Um, we've done, so we have consumable products. A lot of the the lures that we send, um, you know, you catch a few fish on them and then they break and then you need to replace them. So there are some categories that are just more inherently ready for subscription than others, things that are consumable. Um, and then discovery also, we're in a category with so many products come out every year, a lot of confusion. So there's like that discovery and the consumable aspects. Most subscription boxes are like one or the other.
0: Yeah. And there's a novelty piece to it too. It seems like we're, you know, I'm thinking about like some of the clothing approaches. It's like, am I, am I legit going to wear that? And my scrutiny, the level of scrutiny that I'm going to apply to it is probably a little bit higher where it's not, you know, you mentioned like, it feels like Christmas. Um, if it's an ugly sweater, it's like the, it's like the bad Christmas gift from grandma. Whereas with this, there's no chance of that. It's like, Oh, that's cool. You know? Yeah. Um, and,
1: and, and in, our, in our case, like if you get a lure, you can't use, let's say it runs too deep for the water that you fish, which we try to like solve for, but we're not perfect. You know, most people are like, you know what, I'm going to say this cause I like to travel and fish and I may be in a lake down the road or I'm going to give it to a kid or I'm going to donate it. And that's like one lure in the box. So they have a very high tolerance for that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. Interesting. Um, let, so let's talk about, so that, that was the box model. You had some success with that. And then as you mentioned, you, you expanded, and now you're producing your own products. And how, walk us through that. Like, how did you, what made you decide to kind of do that? Um, it's a completely different, I would imagine there's just landmines everywhere. So, I mean, how, how what was that process like of conceiving of an idea, um, finding manufacturers, kind of bringing it to market? It's, from, from what I understand, you sell direct and now you also maybe have some retail relationships. Like, let's talk a little yeah. bit about some of that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. So at some point with Mystery Tackle Box, as we continue to grow um, that business and we started to think about future paths for growth, you know, we started to ask ourselves, how do we become more um, a part of our customers purchasing? You know, they were spending about $20 a month with us on average. But what we learned through data is they were spending another $25 a month on top of what they bought from us on other fishing gear. So Mm -hmm. we're like, oh, wow, we're missing a big part of the pie here. And what we realized is our skill set is building relationships with customers, authentic relationships online. So we believe that we could go into these other areas, e commerce, product development, et cetera. But we didn't, we knew Mystery Tackle Box wasn't the brand to do that. We weren't going to launch a Mystery Tackle Box e commerce site or branded products, Mystery Tackle Box. So we started to think about, you know, how do we create a bigger vision and a bigger company? And so that's where the idea for Catchco came is like, let's create a parent company, Catchco. We can then, you know, create these sub brands. We can distribute them in mystery tackle box. So that was the business model. But yep. in terms of like the confidence level we needed to do that, um, first of all, fishing lures, at least some of them, are very easy to make. A big category of fishing lures is called like soft plastics, and they're basically injection molded um, creepy crawlers. If you remember as a kid, creepy yeah. crawlers, you yeah, have yeah. an aluminum mold. You take hot plastic, you squirt it in, you open the mold, and you have a lure that you can rig on a hook. So. There's a ton of, you know, factories that were either both domestic or overseas that we could tap into and I actually started a soft plastics fishing lure company in 2013 with a friend of mine who was a product designer. He approached me and said, Hey, I want to start something. Do you have any ideas? And I'm like, well, I have a subscription thing going on here. If you want to make lures, I can help you with the branding and we can put them in the box. Because that was kind of like a fun side project. So we, we did that, and that was a great learning experience for me. He knew everything about product design, so he walked me through the molds and mm-hmm. all that stuff. We launched that brand. It became incredibly successful in the boxes, and I was able to use consumer insights around what do our consumers want based on the feedback we see from boxes. Yeah, They want more modern brands. They want cooler and more innovative product design. So we're able to take those insights and say, how do we create brands that deliver to this younger generation of anglers who are looking for things that speak to them, Versus the, the lures that have been around for 50 years that their dad or their grandfather used. So we how did that. You, we a as I said, how
0: are you doing that in terms of getting capturing that that feedback? Was that every month? Like how? What were the mechanisms you were using to kind of capture? Um, that? So thing? like
1: customers were able to review products. We were able to like just engage in dialogue online with them. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, over email. So this company was called Biospawn Lure Company, and like we built this sci-fi esque futuristic brand um like based on like video game culture like when i was a kid i used to play halo and like some of those games so like for me i was like this would be cool like most of my ideas tend to start with me saying this will be cool (laughs) for me uh and then i need to go validate it so i started with that and then we started to show it to customers like yeah that's so different sure some people like thought it was too weird but like we weren't targeting them yeah um so we launched biospawn that was in the boxes we got picked up by cabela's it did well in stores so kind of proved out early on, like, cool. okay, this is, this isn't terribly difficult. So when it came to thinking about a catch go, it's scaling that out. Now I have a whole team of resources and factories were like, okay, like I kind of know the playbook here. Um, and we knew we, you know, the subscription model allowed us to, to do all this stuff because we had no inventory risk. We could go manufacture something. We knew we were going to put, you know, 50,000 in, yeah. in a box. Yeah. And so why not try it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's how we started. And as we started to build popularity around our brands, we started to invest more in product development. Today, we have a whole product development team. We're actually innovating, like doing some really cool product development stuff. Um, but part of it too is brand innovation. And one of the big things we've always done is work with YouTube influencers. We've worked with YouTube influencers since 2013 before like influencers was even like called a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We started sponsoring some fishing YouTubers when when they were like teenagers and they had 150 YouTube subscribers. And now these are the guys who have like 1.5 million. Yeah. And so we've had that relationship. Yeah. And there's a brand, um, there's a group of YouTube influencers called the Guggen Squad. They're like the big fishing group. It's like five different channels. They all have like over a million subscribers. And so we basically started to co-develop products with the Guggen Squad for Hmm. a bunch of different categories. And they had a certain product they had already had in retail that was performing 5X better in that category than previous um, products. So when the retailers heard we were making this whole other bunch of products, they basically came knocking on our door and oh, said, we need all the Guggen Squad stuff. Like, how yeah. quickly can we get it? Yeah. And we were basically able to say, well, look, we also make all this catch-go stuff. We have mystery tackle boxes. And we had some leverage. So like Dick Sporting Goods, for example, they gave us a shot. They said, okay, we'll, we'll put mystery tackle boxes on shelves we we'll take a couple of other products. And it turned out that all of those products have performed incredibly well yeah. um, because we reach an audience that most of the other brands just haven't really figured out how to, to tap into, which is, you know, the youth, the younger, younger anglers. And so that's been very powerful. Retailers have been looking for ways to really sell to yeah. younger anglers. And so we've been very fortunate. In that the
0: um, With the influencer stuff, are there any, any sort of um, strategies or advice you would give people that, um, you know, increase the likelihood of success with that? I mean, it sounds like, was that, I mean, you find these people that have 150 followers or whatever it is. Um, are you just casting a huge net and you're, you know, you're reaching out to a thousand of them and then, or was there something you saw or that you were looking for in terms of the way that they were approaching what they were doing that you thought was going to be more predictive of success when you're kind of growing with them as they grow? Or how, how did you, um, I guess, how would you advise people to kind of approach influencer marketing in general? And then especially like, how do you, how do you find those diamonds in a rough that are going to become that you think you're going to kind of blow up or is it just dumb luck? It's
1: so different now than it was like, you know, even five years ago when we were doing this, like so saturated right now. There's, there's so many people in every category. yep They're getting more expensive, they're getting less authentic. And so it's certainly harder now. yeah Um, Early on when we started we sponsored these guys with 150 subscribers because they were the only ones on YouTube doing fishing at the Got time. It. So okay. we had a choice, right? Got I mean, it. there were a couple. There were a couple who had like the biggest one had like 15,000 subscribers. This is even before YouTube like itself even had very large influencers. Like most of the content back in 2013, it wasn't like vlogging and like the stuff that's really big now. It was like short, funny videos of like cats playing the piano and like stuff like that. So. Um, it was a different world back then. And I thought it was powerful because when I, I fished my whole life, but I got into bass fishing in my late twenties and I learned to bass fish from this guy on YouTube, a 16 year old kid who is now a member of the Guggen squad, who was also became an employee of ours for a period of time. But I used to watch his videos and like he was the only way, but I was like, this is crazy. I can learn to fish like by watching YouTube. I just realized the power of, of the platform then. Now, you know, really authenticity is a big part of it for us. So a lot of the people we work with. They're already customers of ours. They reach out to us. They've already been getting our box for a year and they love it. And they're like, Hey, how can I be part of the team? Their channels start growing. Um, th- those are the ones we focus on. It's, it's harder. We have, we ch- churn through more influencers now than we used to because it becomes like, you know, they want a lot of money. They don't show a lot of value and you really need to like have your KPIs in order. And we give them all unique coupon codes and we give them links. Yep. Some of it's hard to attribute because we also think there is a brand element. Sure. Yeah. But like the second it gets purely transactional and they don't want to like really build a relationship with us, that's when we're like, okay, we're good. We're probably not the right partner for you because we really want to like help you. We want to help you create content. We want your input on product development. We, you know, we want this to be a two way thing. And if it's like, no, just write me a big check and leave me alone. Like we're doing less and less of that.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. So, I mean, it seems like a lot of, you know, a lot of the things that were really successful for you. Um, would maybe be hard, a little bit hard to replicate like in 2020 or at least to get the same kind of results from. If you were, if you were starting over and you were going to build a fishing brand um, and you're starting in 2020, what would you do differently? How would you go about it? What would be the same? What would be different? How would you have gone about it? Would you have done it in the same order of operations of like community box model, e-commerce retail? Would you change that order up? Like how, what would you do differently?
1: Yeah, I would probably, the thing I would do differently today is I'd start with community. Absolutely. Like if I couldn't figure out the community piece, then I wouldn't be doing it because, because it would just be too hard. I would start with community, but the subscription thing, you know, it's certainly harder now than it used to be to get into subscription because people have preconceived notions about what subscription is. There, there may be some fatigue if there's a ton of companies. So unless there was like a really specific, unique angle and it's never been done before, I wouldn't start with subscription. I'd probably go community product. Yep. So I'd build a community and then I'd find one amazing product to serve that community. Um, and then honestly, I don't even know that I would go e-commerce. Like we happen to be in a position to do e-commerce because we have such a large community around a yeah. subscription that we want to serve them and, and fulfill all their purchasing needs. If I was starting a, a brand new company today, because e-commerce is complicated, it has inventory implications, like it's it's hard. I would focus on like just the D2C brand aspect and build a suite of products, sell those directly, and then try to get into third-party partners as well. But all leverage on the back of my community. Like that's where I would, would start in a heartbeat.
0: Uh, interesting. So where, what's the future of Catchco? Where is it? Where do you go from here? I'm, that's
1: a great question. I mean, you know... I've always had a lot of ideas, so it's always trying to figure out like how to contain them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, sure. What are the What are the right ones? I mean, we we've just seen a ton of. I mean, we're we're growing like crazy right now. Like we're very fortunate right now. You know, there's so many people that are really hurting because of COVID and coronavirus and, and their businesses. Like, yep. outdoor sporting goods sold online is a good place to be right now. So it's like taking a minute to like just be thankful for that and yeah. kind of thinking about. How do we serve customers? There's more people fishing now than ever before. Like every time I go out on the lake, I'm just blown away. So we have a huge opportunity. So a lot of what we're thinking about is how do we simplify this category, make it easier for people who've never fished before, get into the category and have an amazing outdoor experience. Um, that's where we see a lot of opportunity. So we're really starting to think about that. Um, content, we're just always thinking about how can we be on the forefront of content. Whether it's distribution, can we get a show on Netflix, can we get a show on Amazon Prime, like really blowing out our content side? Um, And the last one that's just top of mind right now for us is like, how can we be more socially responsible as a company? Like, what are our opportunities within fishing to really make changes that this sport hasn't been really on the forefront of? We think there's a big opportunity for us to, to, to address that. So we're just thinking... About what that looks like. For
0: interesting. Us. Very cool. Well, so folks who want to learn more, uh, where, where should where should we send them?
1: Yeah, they can uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Just include a note about why you're connecting with me, so I don't <laughs> think you're trying to sell me something. <laughs> uh, or shoot me an email if you if you want to email me Ross at catchco.com. Happy to chat that way as well.
0: Very cool. Well, Ross, thank you so much for doing this. This Was uh, super super interesting, and uh, con- you know, again, congrats on everything that you've managed to do so far, and, and look forward to seeing where you go from here.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having
0: me. My guest today was Ross Gordon. For more ideas on how to be disruptive in your own organization, visit us at www.digintent.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love a review on Spotify, iTunes, or whatever platform you use. That's it for this episode. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.